Day two, everybody. It's good to see everyone here. Thanks for coming back so early. Um, so today, um, we're going to be discussing the boom to bust, the rapid acceleration of dislocation within markets. My name is Nicholas Milliken. I'm Managing Director of Investment Strategy at Case, an alternative investment platform um, that brings investment, alternative investment solutions to the independent wealth management channel. So um, if you want, want to hear more about what we do, we're right out the front of the door here. So today, I'm joined by Pat Dyson. Uh, partner and global head of telecom and member of the distress committee at Golden Tree, and then Mark Lazry, the chairman, CEO, and co-founder of Avenue Capital. So, gentlemen, thanks for joining me this morning. How are things? Uh, good to be here. Yeah. yeah. Lot, lot to do in distressed. Absolutely. So, Mark, you back to office plans. How are things going so far? Everything's actually going pretty well, I think. Uh, you know, we've told people they should be back. Um, I'd say the vast majority of our firm is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some folks still, you know, people who have kids, but our view is, you know, you should be in the office. Um, if you've got issues, we're happy to deal with them mm -hmm. and help you deal with them. But, you know, to get investment ideas, to do the things we're doing, I think you've got to be in the office. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so far, so good. And I think everything's been pretty good. I would say everybody in our office is vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So it hasn't really been an issue for us. What about globally? Because you have global offices, is that the same? It's harder. It, it, it's harder because in I would tell you in Asia and Hong Kong, uh, I can't even go there. I mean, I used to go there at least twice a year. Now to go, you've got to quarantine for 14 days, so you're not going to go. Yeah. Uh, so there's less travel, um, much more Zoom. So here, at least you're traveling within the United States. It's mm -hmm. fine. But I would say globally, it's gotten a lot harder. Uh, people are going into the office, uh, but I think the travel between regions, Europe is different. You can do that. I would just tell you Asia is much harder. Okay. What about you, Pat? What's the uh, deal over at Golden Tree? Yeah, I mean, I would say pretty similar to what Mark said. We were, if I think back to kind of when we went fully back into the office would be around Labor Day of, of last year. And, um, you know, we've been largely back since that, that point in time, um, you know, I guess with certain exceptions, but, you know, we certainly value um, the collaboration that occurs by being uh, in the office. Um, we also have an office down in, in uh, Palm Beach where uh, we're able to have that collaboration during the height of the COVID, COVID pandemic, which certainly helped us. Um, and then, you know, as I think about London, um, you know, London's been slower, but now we're, we're largely fully back to office in, in London as well. So from our perspective, um, you know, we really think that, that being in the office is, you know, of paramount importance to promote the collaboration and just the, the daily interaction. And yeah. then ultimately when you think about, you know, fostering a culture, um, you could probably get away from, with the work from home stuff for uh, a shorter period of time, but as you think about bringing uh, people up into the culture, it's, it's really challenging if you're not in the office and seeing them face sure. to face. Yeah, we were talking about that earlier, especially with the pace of hiring and yeah. financial services has been yeah. pretty resilient yeah. Um, yeah. through the pandemic. So today we're gonna to discuss the pandemic impact on distress. It was obviously a big focus of um, last year and then sort of relate that back to the global financial crisis and then look at the opportunity set going forward. So, you know, if we were sitting here this time last year, you know, people were talking about, you know, estimating to peak default rates at 10 to 15%. You know, I think it was September, they peaked at 5% in 2020. So what happened, Mark? Maybe we start with you last year. What did you see? Um, the Fed. I mean, 
screwed us. Um, it was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> they decided to come in and save the country. Uh, but yeah, it literally was. The, the, I, I think for us, really what we focus on is when there's a lack of liquidity, mm -hmm. right? You're providing liquidity, you're coming in, and you're, you're able to do things because there's issues, right? People have problems. Um, the Fed came in and provided massive liquidity. And that massive amount of liquidity um, ended up being great for the country um, and great for companies. So that you were just gonna have um, lower default rates. Mm -hmm. And I think what it's done is, at least for firms like ours, um, your, the opportunity to buy bonds maybe at 20 cents is gone, but the opportunity to lend money between 10 and 15 or to do structure deals, um, that's turned out to be great. So you've got a ton of those opportunities. Mm -hmm. But I think ultimately at the end of the day, everywhere around the world, um, it's just this huge amount of liquidity that's come in. So that's good. The bad part is for companies that can't access that liquidity, um, they've got to come to us. Right. And that's, you know, that's when we can come in and sort of dictate terms. So Pat, what do you, did you see the same thing? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you think about um, kind of comparing 0809 to, to last year's crisis, um, so the, the widest the market got in 0809 was, was north of 2,000 on, on a spread to war basis. Last year we got just above 1,000. And then if you think about the period of time at which the market was north of 100 basis points spread to worse, in 0809 it was around 11 or 12 weeks. Last year it was three weeks. Right. And to Mark's point, I mean, that, that was the Fed. And, you know, if you rewind to 0809, the, it was a bit unprecedented. You didn't know what the Fed was going to do. You didn't know what the, the moves they were going to make. I think this time around, there was some expectation that you would see the Fed step in. And then they stepped in, obviously, uh, very swiftly. And, you know, to Mark's point, that kind of took the opportunity set or the broader opportunity set away. You know, our takeaway from that is, is that, you know, you really have to be in the market uh, because you don't know how long that dislocation is going to exist. And if you think about um, some of the elements of kind of post the 0809 crisis is that the dislocations are shorter, whether it's in 2011 or 15, 16, or certainly last year. So, um, you know, trying to time the market and waiting for this big bang and distress is super tricky. Um, and so you kind of have to be around the market and be, you know, able to move very quickly across you know, the opportunities when they present themselves because you don't know how fleeting it's going to be. Well, the, on that point, exactly right. The financial crisis in the markets anyway, um, you know, it took about 12 months for them to go from top to bottom. You know, it was 12 days during the pandemic. Like, and you were talking about the distress cycle. Have you seen that accelerate as well? The distress cycle? Yeah, with the, the, the restructurings and the, the activity around distress deals, has that accelerated as you well? You meaning the actual time that a deal? Right. Yep. I mean, no, not, not really. I mean, I think that if you think about the, from kind of the genesis of an investment through the process, um, you know, has, has that process necessarily sped up? Short answer is no. I mean, you still have to go through the courts to go through the process if that, if that is in fact what you're asking. So from a process perspective, um, no, haven't seen it, it speed up necessarily. And if we think about uh, distress for control investments, you know, these are investments that are gonna be kind of in the one to three year uh, type of period that matches up with the capital that we have deployed to distressed. I so think what it's taken longer, sorry. actually. No, go ahead. 
No, no, I think it's taking longer because what's happened is um, there's more fighting. You know, when you, when in, in these processes today, um, you're going to court, but you'd have to have sort of, you know, a Zoom court meeting and it, everything just took a little bit longer. Um, and, you know, and that was good and bad. I mean, because the, the good part for companies is maybe they were able to access capital. Um, the bad part is maybe, you know, things just because it took longer, they didn't have that capital. So, it, I mean, it, it was very different. Um, I, I think the biggest point is the fact that you've got to be in the market, mm -hmm. right? I, I wish I can tell you when it started and things started going down. I mean, we started buying, but we didn't know how long it was going to last, right? And you get nervous and literally you had that three week, four week period before the Fed stepped in. You didn't know the Fed was going to come in as strongly as they did. So, you know, you're trying to be careful and you're trying to invest. You know, what we should have done was just put all our money to work in those three weeks. Mm -hmm. um, I wish somebody had called and told me, but uh, <laughs> so it's been good. So on that and putting money to work, you know, we saw a lot of people come out with, you know, pretty big um, target fundraisers. Can you talk a little bit about the sizing opportunity of last year and maybe the frequency with which, you know, you sort of need to access these opportunities? Yeah, so, um, you know, look, as, as you, those funds that were looking to raise capital to take advantage of the COVID dislocation probably weren't able to deploy the capital, um, as Mark was alluding to. You know, from our perspective, we view distressed as an evergreen opportunity set. And, you know, as we think about that opportunity set, um, you know, the size of the overall leveraged finance market has exploded in size uh, to over $3 trillion today. And, you know, we think that that's a, a very, very broad opportunity set to be able to deploy capital against. You know, as we think about it, Golden Tree are the sizing of our funds. We purposely size our funds at a level that allows us to certainly play large cap names, but maybe most importantly, allows us to get into the mid cap and smaller cap names. And then those names can really drive performance. So um, the size of the fund, I think, is important because, you know, as we talked about earlier, the, the swiftness of these dislocations and then also, you know, even today, there continues to be disruptions within the market, even though the overall uh, health of the market is very strong. But to be able to get into some of these mid-cap names and have those mid-cap names really drive performance is important. Um, and so that's how we think about it from kind of sizing our, from a sizing of our funds perspective. Yeah, and so what about you, Mark? Do you think about it in a similar way? No, we do. I, I, I think what has changed, though, if you sort of think back to different cycles, um, you wanted, there was more large cap opportunities. You just had bigger companies. Um, so you'd want to have a larger fund. I think today what you have is you have small cap, mid cap, large cap. Mm -hmm. But to take advantage of the small and mid cap size, you can't have a large fund. Right. I mean, it can't be that large because then otherwise you're not going to have um, a, a small mid cap opportunity is not really going to have an effect. So I, I think... I think for anybody who wants to do really well, you want to try to have a fund that's somewhere between 500 million to 2 billion, because then you could take advantage of everything. I think that's where the market has changed. I think trying to do, folks who raised a lot of money, I'd be surprised if they were able to sort of put it to work. Mm -hmm. um, I think what everybody is doing now is doing much more on the private lending side. Um, you know, we'll find our deals, Golden Tree will find their deals, everybody will find different deals. Um, but it's, you know, what can you charge today? 
Mm -hmm. um, and then the real opportunities to create real value are going to be in the small and the mid cap. Yeah. Interesting. So when we talk to financial advisors, you know, in our business, you know, a lot of them just say, well, I've, I've, have I missed the opportunity? And, and Pat, you kind of touched on this, that there's always distress. Can you t tease that out a little bit and talk about what drives distress, you know, irrespective of what's happening in the broader markets? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the theme would be that there's always things to do in the market. And, and going back to my earlier point about the size of the market. So it's a huge market. You know, today, the percentage of the market that is distressed is not that significant, but um, there's still things to do out there. And if we, you know, if you think about, um, first off, we live in a world, uh, so it's three trillion in size, leverage has been creeping up, first lien leverage is at all time highs, and you know, we don't always exist in a world of the most stellar management teams as well. So, you know, that in and of itself can breed opportunities. And then when you think about, um, particular sectors, you know, there's sectors that are continuing to experience ongoing disruptions, whether it's telecom from a competitive perspective and the CapEx intensity or media, as you think about it, how all of us digest media today and how different that is to, you know, several years ago, um, energy, obviously retail, um, amongst others. So there's, a, you know, there's a number of industries that continue to be disrupted to, to Mark's point in my earlier comment, being able to get to these mid cap names is important. Um, and then even when you think about, um, you know, thinking about say, you know, telecom, for example, two of the, of the top 10 largest defaults in the history of high yield happened within the last 18 months, Frontier and Intelsat, and they had nothing to do with, with COVID. Um, so those types of opportunity sets can arise. Um, and as we think about it from a geographical perspective, you know, we're deploying capital in North America and Europe and selectively in EM. So we feel really good about the ability to deploy capital in, you know, benign environments. And then final point I'll make, if you just go back and, um, kind of proofs in the pudding, if you go back and look at the history of our deployment of capital, um, over the last 10, 11 years, it's been super steady. And if you think about what we did in 16, 17, 18, 19, in reasonably benign environments, we're always finding things to do. Obviously last year it spiked up, um, but we're confident we're gonna get our shots. So Mark, we, we spoke a lot last year and you kept our, um, our clients very well informed what was going on. We talked about Intelsat, we talked about Hertz and Avis. Can you talk about that example where they've got similar businesses in Hertz and Avis, but one survived and one didn't. Can you talk about what sort of drives that? Yeah. Um, like I think part of it, it's kind of hard for a satellite company to get COVID. I mean, definitely difficult. You never know, right? <laughs> They'll come out and say satellites are now COVID free. Um, but um, I, I think when you look at this, you know, why did a company file, right? The, the real reason companies filed is um, <clears throat> it was really their, how much liquidity they had. So Hertz at the time was fully drawn on their credit facility. So all of a sudden COVID comes, nobody's renting a car. Um, you've got huge losses and you can't, you, you already borrowed as much as you can, so you can't really do anything. Whereas Avis um, had a line that they could draw on. So the, the whole key in the beginning uh, of this was how much liquidity did you have? So if you sort of, you know, a, a simple industry um, was really, if you take a look at sort of the shipping industry, um, Carnival Cruise, right? Are, are people going on cruises? You know, how many people went on a cruise last year? You can all take your time, raise your hand. <laughs> right, so 
Just think of that, right? How many people went on a cruise, and yet that industry, uh, because they had all this asset value on these cruise ships, was able to borrow money um, and could borrow. And in the beginning, they were borrowing, you know, what was the first year? I think around like 12%. Mm -hmm. You know, and now they're borrowing around five or six. And you guys still haven't gone on a cruise. So, but the market is saying it's all coming back. And they had the access to that liquidity. Um, and that's really what's changed. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have access to liquidity, you're going to survive. You're going to do well. If you didn't have access to liquidity, you were filing. And that's why Hertz and a number of other companies went, went under. Um, but today, I would tell you the vast majority of companies have access to liquidity. And also, the rates are so low. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, you know, we're, we're charging, I would say, 8 to 12. Right, I assume you guys are doing the same. Don't tell me you're charging five, then you're gonna undercut me, and then you know, now I gotta go charge less. But if you sort of think about it, we're all charging roughly the same. Um, and that's because, look, if you can borrow 1%, you're not coming to us to do a deal, mm -hmm. right? So the only people we're talking to are the folks who, where there's issues, and we'll structure a deal to make sure that we're fine. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a need for liquidity. Mm -hmm. I think uh, SALT 2022 should be on a cruise line. I think it's certainly an opportunity. <laughs> oh, we should tell Anthony. I mean, yeah. it's... We'll tell him backstage after this. Oh, yeah. So have we essentially just kicked the can down the road then with the Fed coming in as aggressively as they had? Like, is it, are we bottling up a massive distressed event in the next few years here? I think you are, but the reason I think you are is just, I, how much longer can you keep lending money at zero? Right, so our, our deficit keeps going up. Um, the amount of money the government is paying on rates, you know, just on interest alone, is pretty low. If that starts moving up, we're gonna have real issues. But again, um, I can't print money. Mm -hmm. So when you can print money and you can keep borrowing, it's great, and people still wanna have sort of treasuries, but whether, whether the day of reckoning is five years from now or you know, next year, five years, 20 years, I have no idea. Mm -hmm. But it will, sooner or later, you just can't keep borrowing as much as we're borrowing. Um, but for right now, I think the Fed and the government have done the right thing, which is you had to restart the economy, you had to provide that liquidity. But there is a real cost to that. Right. I mean, the amount of money that's been borrowed in the last, I mean, you've got a three and a half trillion dollar deal today. You've had trillions of dollars that have already gone out. I mean, it is huge dollars that are being spent um, and hopefully the economy will be able to repay that. Pat, do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would agree. I mean, if, if you just, again, the timing is, is very difficult to discern, but there's stuff that's going on in the market today, and, you know, we see it at Golden Tree because we're not just focusing on distress, but we have a, a broader credit platform, so we're looking at all the new issuance that's coming today, both from loans and bonds, and there's some very aggressive things that are happening. Um, and statistically, again, if you look at the market, leverage is at near all-time highs in the market. First lien leverage is at all-time highs. What does that mean on the back end? That means that recovery rates for loans is gonna be lower, which means potential technical selling around, around CLOs. Um, the magnitude of low-quality issuance, defined as uh, single B or triple C, if you were to annualize the year to date so far, we would end up having the largest aggregate low quality issuance year ever this year. So all these things are kind of telltale signs that, yeah, we're doing some things that you probably shouldn't be doing. And, um, you know, at 
we're at Golden Tree, we're, you know, we're spending time on a lot of these new issuances, not necessarily playing them, but we're building a database of the names when they, some of them inevitably, um, you know, do run into stress or distressed. And then final point, which I thought was a bit of a, you know, interesting nugget when you think about, obviously, the, you know, the market's talking about default rates being really low, which they are, they're going to be this year. But the previous, the, the lowest default rate year ever was 2007. And then you then had 08 and 09, which was the largest distress cycle ever. So um, the answer is yes, it's coming. The question is, is, is when, and, and I don't know, but that goes back to my earlier point. You got to be in the market because you don't want, know when it's necessarily going to happen. But um, yeah, it will happen within, you know, certainly within the next several years would, would be our view. So if, it, if we're looking 12 to 24 months out, if we stay in a low default rate and a high growth rate, um, in high growth in the economy, what happens? Um, what's the opportunity set? Yeah, I mean, I'll just kind of echoing, I'll, I'll go first, Mark, you can follow up. And I'll, I'll echo just some of the points we're saying. Again, there's um, going back and thinking about particular industries or um, dislocations that may occur in some of these more complex situations. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we were very active in, in Puerto Rico, for example, which is, you know, very complex, 20 different issuers. Uh, we've been very active in a company called Digicel, which is, you know, an EM company with eight different bond issuing boxes. Complexity can, can breed opportunity, um, having these complex situations. Once you're in them, there can be a real barrier to entry from others uh, being involved because you can't just kind of open up a page and, and understand it takes a lot of time. And the technical dislocations from a trading perspective can be, can be very attractive. Um, but again, when you look underneath the hood at a, at a number of these sectors, energy, retail, telecom, media, healthcare, I would throw in there even you know, financial to some degree, um, you know, there's dislocation and disruption that is occurring that we think is going to provide opportunities, again, regardless of what happens you know, broadly in the market. Mark, any thoughts on the... No, dude, look, everybody always goes, well, I don't, how are you able to make money when everything is going so great? I mean, it's actually really simple. There, there's a lot of knuckleheads out there. Um, there are, I mean, there's companies... <laughs> I, I wish every company was great. I mean, I, I wish everything was always perfect. I wish things weren't so complicated, but they are. Um, and the more complicated it is, the better it is for us. I mean, it's... It's um, your ease of capital means that people are borrowing money that shouldn't. Mm -hmm. And they're doing things and they're getting money for things they shouldn't. And I, all I can tell you is, you know, there's hundreds of deals that we pass on. I'm sure there's hundreds of deals that Pat is passing on. And is it, all I do when I look at those deals is go, oh, great, that's whether that's a year, two, or three years. I know that company's going to have a problem. Mm -hmm. And look, time, if you can borrow at 50 bips today, or 1% or 2%, you should. Right? I mean, what, how many people have bought houses? And the reason you're able to borrow money, so that's why the mar that market is going through. What, I, I think people sort of just assume when everything is great, um, it's going to be great for a while. It's funny, when things are going well, Nobody thinks it's going to end, but when things are are bad, nobody thinks it's ever going to turn, right? I mean, it's you know, I used to you know, I had an investor who I I would say, well, look, you know, what we try to do is buy things at sixty cents, 
And he goes, why not 50? I was like, okay, that's a good idea, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not, yeah, that's not, yeah. And then if I said 50, why not, right, why not 40? No, it's, that's the market, right? It's not like I make stuff up. Um, so I think for all of us, we, we know there's gonna be issues. And there are issues today, and we're all investing in that. Now, is there a 10% default rate? No. So um, I, I would assume the same thing for, for Golden Tree and for Pat. It's, are we working harder today? Yes, because you're trying to find different deals, you're looking at different companies, um, whereas when there's a 10% default rate, you're just overwhelmed by the amount of paper. And there you're picking and choosing. So I, I think, I think there, will, there are always problems. Um, and ultimately, our goal is to sort of invest while there's those problems and wait for there to be a lot. And it will always come. It's just a, it's a question of when. And whether that's a year from now or five years from now, I can't tell you. Mm -hmm. um, what I do have is I do have faith that there are a lot of people who are making huge mistakes. Yeah. yeah. So if we look at the current crisis of uh, the dislocation of last year, it was really driven by a health crisis, right? But we look back to the global financial crisis, that was a financial crisis. So is there a difference in the type of distress that you have seen to, like in the last 18 months compared to you know, 10 years ago? Short answer would be, no, um, you know, as I, as I think about it, I mean, obviously the characteristics of this time around was it was more fleeting in a lot of ways. Um, but the, you know, if you think about the economic, the impact to the, to the, to the economy was more pronounced um, this time around as compared to 08, 09, whether it's unemployment or kind of hit the GDP mm -hmm. within that particular period, um, the market dislocation was less. Uh, was everything sold in March last year? Yeah, which is which is consistent with what happened in 0809. You didn't have the first lien sell-off that occurred in 0809. You didn't have the leverage more broadly across the system uh, that you had in 0809. But you did have situations where there there were leverage issues, um, you know, notably in the RMBS market. Um, so, you know, as as and then there were certainly as Mark alluded to, more COVID-impacted industries, whether it's whether it's Hertz or cruise lines, um, you know, where yeah, there was a bit more of a of a specific issue there, but broadly, and that's frankly where some of the opportunities uh, arose. Everything was sold, and you know, I, I alluded to you know Frontier earlier. Frontier was sold, but actually was going to be a beneficiary because of the work-from-home environment and the need for broadband. Um, yeah. You know, all of retail was sold, and we invested in, in Joanne Stores, which is a uh, fabrics and crafts company that was actually going to be a net beneficiary and was uh, allowed to remain open because they sell fabrics to make uh, masks, and uh, there was also the desire to stay home and do crafts. So, you know, you had to kind of winnow through all of that. Um, in a quick period of time, mm -hmm. but there were certainly some, some winners and losers as there always is in these distress cycles. But um, you know, I'd say the biggest characteristic of it was kind of the fleeting nature of the crisis as compared to, to 08, 09. Yeah, any, any observations there, Mark? No, I think it was the same. I mean, the, the big difference was I think in 08, 09, you were worried your financial institutions were gonna go under. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that, that gave you more of a worry 
Okay. Right. So I would have told you in 0809, I was worried that this was the system that stayed around. Today, I wasn't worried about the system. I knew the system was fine. Mm -hmm. um, I just didn't know how long it would last. Right. And I, I was totally wrong. I mean, I thought COVID, you know, after a couple of weeks, you know, when we all shut down, I thought, oh, it, everything will be fine. Um, yeah, I was so wrong. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I thought, it, I thought, oh, summer's coming, it'll be fabulous, everybody will be ready. Um, but so I think for us, yeah, we got to invest and, you know, we did well. Mm -hmm. But it's, I, I, I wasn't worried about sur survival, whereas in 08, I was worried about would we be around. So there are a couple of things happening, right? So we just touched on the distress cycle. Have we seen a structural shift in the distress cycle? Has it become accelerated? Are we going to have more of these short bursts of distress rather than a more prolonged environment? If you tell me what the Fed's going to do, I'll give you an answer. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really it. I mean, I think part of it is, I think the Fed is, is more willing today to act. And really what it's about is liquidity. Yeah. So if the Fed's willing to provide liquidity, it's only willing to provide liquidity when they're worried about systemic risk, mm -hmm. right? So, and I think that's what it was. I don't think the Fed's going to get involved if you start seeing a slowdown, right? Because that's fine. That's not, that's not a systemic risk to the system. So I think, you know, the one thing we really haven't had is sort of a recession, right? If you sort of think about it, like a uh, recession is two negative quarters, right? So... Um, a real recession, um, I don't think the Fed's going to come in that hard. It's not like they can lower rates much lower. Mm. So um, I, I think you need shocks to the system where people can't access capital, then the Fed will come in. Yeah, Pat, any thoughts there? No, I would, I would agree on, on the Fed comment. And I think if you think about, again, the characteristics of kind of the, the crisis the crises that have happened post 0809, they've been more fleeting. And I think that is because you kind of, the Fed was in there or you knew you had this, this access to liquidity. And so if you think about the Eurozone crisis, well, that was ultimately, it ended with um, some move by, by the ECB. When you think about 1516, which was the energy led uh, crisis that became contagion in the broader market, you know, that was when spreads got north of a thousand and, and the market stepped in. Um, and then last year certainly was, was quick with, with the Fed uh, also stepping in very, very rapidly. So uh, I agree with Mark. I mean, it, it's, it's going to be, um, if, if the Fed is not there, then you're, then you're going to see a more prolonged distress cycle, whether it's 0809 or kind of 0203. Um, and you know, and I think that that's also to Mark's point, like, you know, what else can the Fed do is kind of the issue. And whether it's, if you think about what's going on in the market, whether it's inflation, rates, taxes, over, you know, more regulatory driven environment, there's some issues that particularly when you think about, okay, what's growth going to look like in 23? Uh, I don't know, maybe not so great. And mm -hmm. so that's, you know, it can certainly lead to, to a broader opportunity set. So we've talked a lot about the Fed and the Fed's involvement and, you know, coming in to save the day or ruin the opportunity for you, Mark. Um, so is it their role to keep stepping in? I mean, after the financial crisis, remember there was $800 billion bailout back then, and now we're talking in the trillions. I mean, how much further can the Fed intervene without completely breaking the system? Is it their mandate now to provide liquidity? I think it's becoming their mandate. I think it's becoming a societal issue. I mean... Um, do you, you don't want people out of work. You don't want companies filing for, I mean, if, if you're a government or 
you know, if you're president of the United States or if you're the head of the Fed, it, do you want people going into bankruptcy? Do you want people being hurt? I think the answer is no, right? And I think what's changed is originally the Fed was there to worry about inflation, to worry about rates getting too high. I think now the Fed is making sure that the system keeps working and that people have access to liquidity and that, you know, you, you keep unemployment where it is. That um, I, I think it has changed. I think it's very much different than it was when I started in the business. Mm -hmm. um, I think the Fed now has a much bigger mandate. Yeah. Uh, Pat, any thoughts on? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the, the, the willingness of, the, of our society today to allow for this extended pain to occur yeah. is, I think, much more limited than it has been in the past. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just because what the Fed has done over the last 11, 12 years, if things get too bad, everyone's like, okay, you guys got to go do something. Yep. Whereas that necessarily wasn't the case before because they were in a bit more of a narrower lane. Um, so, I mean, if you, the, the size of the government and, and all of those things, you know, we've certainly shifted from a societal perspective. And I think that that impacts how you know, they react to the market. Mm. It's interesting. Um, the, the role has certainly changed for sure, and you can see that. So if we look at, um, we've touched a little bit on sectors. What about geography? There's uneven um, and economic recoveries going on around the world. We've got resurgence. You know, I'm an Australian. You know, we're, my family's been locked down for 250 days, right? So, yeah. you know, what are opportunities there geographically? They need to get out more. They do need family. to get out more, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they can't get out. This is right. <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll go first. Uh, I mean, for, you know, from our perspective, it would, we're, you know, we're a bit agnostic to the jurisdiction. We we uh, focus on North America and Europe, and then selectively in uh, certain emerging market comp uh, countries. Um, you know, as I think about the opportunity set, I would, you know, envision it being uh, <coughs> probably not too dissimilar from what we've seen over the last several years, where we're going to be. Um, more overweight North America, which is not surprising. I mean, it's, it's a larger market, but even in proportion, if we think back to what we were doing in like 10, 11, 12, well, we had more than typical exposure to Europe because the opportunity set was there. Um, if I was to think about moving forward, I think the opportunity set is going to be um, broader in North America, size of the market, and I don't think that there's going to be you know massive dislocations between North America and Europe as it, as it relates to to the credit opportunity, and then, um, and then finally, you know, emerging markets is going to be very opportunistic for us. We have a, we have an in-house emerging markets team that focuses focuses on sovereigns, and then we overlay them from a, to help out from a corporate credit perspective as well. And we've selectively found opportunities in in various jurisdictions, but. Um, we also know what we don't know um, in certain of these jurisdictions, so we're going to tread somewhat, somewhat cautiously, um, you know, given the different bankruptcy regimes that may exist. And so, when we think about our overall exposure from emerging markets, it's it's always going to be kind of in that you know 10 to 15 percent and kind of max out there mm -hmm. as we think about it. Yeah. So, Mark, you guys are very active geographically. It's one of your competitive advantages. Yeah. Right? No. Look, we think there's we have huge teams out in Europe and in Asia. Um, you know, it, it's a bit of an oxymoron. I mean, we say we invest in Europe, we do, but really we invest in Northern Europe, not Southern Europe, because legal system isn't that great. Okay. Right, and if you sort of think of Asia, um, 
you want to invest in India, absolutely Australia, you want to do Singapore, you want to do Hong Kong, um, you want to do jurisdictions where the legal system works, right? So Asia, you've got a huge amount of different countries, but I, I think for us, we, we're seeing quite a bit of opportunities out there. So I would tell you there's a lack of capital, um, of private capital. So here in the US, there's just, there's a lot of competition. There's more competition in Asia and Europe, there's less for what we do, you know, mm -hmm. for what Pat and I do. So I think it's, um, it's gone pretty well. What about China, like tightening regulation around technology sector? Do you see that as a risk or creating opportunity? No, no, it, it's a risk. Um, I, I think it's hard mm -hmm. to invest in China. I mean, it is. I think the things we've done where we've bought debt. Um, but I, I think right now with the, everything that's going on out there, it's much harder. Um, so, and I think there is a lack of capital because the Chinese government is clamping down. But I think for what we do, um, we want to have sort of a certainty on the legal side. So right now, um, I don't know if you have that in China. So I think you know, we'll just be a little bit more careful, whereas maybe we would have um, a year ago invested more. I think today we'll just be a little bit more careful for China specific. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a little bit about the, the different types of catalysts that could be, but are there common catalysts for distress that people should be looking out for that maybe indicate something coming down the pike or? The, the bonds are trading really low. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. Uh, the bank, that's you, really you first, Mark, go ahead. Right? The bank, that's really low. Um, no, it's just, it's, you know, when you sort of think of, uh, if you think of uh, the travel sector, right, it, last year, that was a huge, it, that's where all the opportunities were, because that was the sector that was going to take longer, the restaurant industry, right? So th there's always sectors that have, that, that are going through ups and downs. And I, I, I would tell you, I mean, I'm sure at Golden Tree is the same thing. You know, we start looking at a company once the bonds are trading, you know, a thousand over treasuries, right? I mean, it's just because you got to get paid for that risk. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe they're doing 800 or maybe we're doing a thousand, they're doing a thousand, we're doing 800 over treasuries. Everybody's got sort of a number and you, that's when you start really focusing on that company, but you've got to have the opportunity. So the, the price has to be down. Um, so, I mean, that, that's sort of how we look at it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's tough to necessarily predict what's going to cause the, the dislocation. I don't think that we would have sat here in you know, December of 19 or January of 20 and said, okay, COVID's going to cause this, this massive dislocation. Yeah, I talked earlier about some of the, the fundamental pressures that are showing in the market from just a kind of core credit metrics perspective. Um, but, you know, as we... As we and I, I would echo what, what Mark said. I mean, when we think about you know looking at particular credits, a we're looking at them kind of all the time, given that we're we're a, a broad credit platform. Um, and then as they go stressed or distressed, um, oftentimes our first purchase is not our is not our best purchase. Mm -hmm. um, but we get deeper into a situation, and there's there's nothing better than when you're deep into a situation and you've got growing conviction that your thesis is playing on is playing out, and even if it's going up you keep buying, that's when you make, you know, kind of the, the, the excess returns that we're all looking for. So, um, you know, tough, again, to, we can all kind of sit here and highlight things that we're focusing on and thinking about and concerned about, but um, what ends up causing the, the dislocation is, is always tough to discern. But again, you gotta be in the market when it happens because just look back at history, 
things happen and you just got to be there and you got to be positioned to move quickly. So we've talked a lot about um, you know, corporate credit situations. Are there any um, opportunities that exist in distress outside of that? I mean, we've, we've, I alluded to a little bit earlier, we've, we've been active um, historically and structured, um, and you know, that can be opportunistic as well. If, you, if again, going back to kind of 10, 2010 to 2012 or 13, there was a lot of dislocations in, in structure, whether it's European CLOs or otherwise, and that was a decent allocation within our distress funds. From 14 to 19 or 20, not really. But then last year there was real dislocations um, in certain elements of the, the RMBS market and we had some big allocations and were able to A, move really quickly and B, deploy a lot of capital in a situation that, that was a very good situation and also is something that we're able to monetize as the market returned. Um, so structured is, a, is, a, you know, is probably even more than an accent for us. It is opportunistic. We've got a, you know, a real uh, strong structured team that does work outside of distressed. And then otherwise, you know, I alluded to, um, to EM, you know, we've been active uh, historically in certain of the larger restructurings in, um, you know, in EM, if I, if I call Puerto Rico EM. So Puerto Rico, uh, which has been a, a very strong investment for us over the last several years. And also we've been involved in, in Argentina. Um, so we'll selectively go to these different jurisdictions when we see the opportunity set. And frankly, it's building on some of the stuff we've done in Puerto Rico, which has been you know, a really strong, uh, as I alluded to, a really strong investment for us. Yeah, anything to add there, Mark? No, I think that's, you know, it's, it's really been on the real estate or on the structured side, so it's the same, same thing. The thing I found, I was smiling a little when uh, Pat said, our first purchase is never our best one. Mm -hmm. I mean, ours has been fabulous. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, there's been a few <laughs> where, you know, you buy something at 60 and you keep buying it at 50, 40, 30, mm. you know, and uh, you keep looking at the ads and going, are you positive <laughs> that, this, that we should still keep buying? But the problem is, you know, in, in these markets, you, you've got to buy when people are selling, mm -hmm. right? And, You've got to believe in your thesis, and it is, I mean, Pat's right. I, I wish I could tell you the first purchase was the best one. It, it tends to be, you know, you start buying, and then you keep buying, and part of what you want to do is the only way you get people nervous is as the price keeps going down, mm, yeah. right? Then more and more people sell because they're like, whoa. So I, I think, you know, the hard part in what we do is um, you're constantly buying at lower prices until it's sort of... Do you have an example, Mark? Just that maybe one that... Pretty much everything we've done. Okay. It's not, yeah. I don't think... <laughs> you want an example, I'll just give you every name. Yeah. I'll give you a great example. There was, I mean, I've told this story before, but we were involved in Ford, like, in 2008. Mm -hmm. And uh, we started buying Ford Bank debt. You know, it was 90, 80, 70, 60, 50. And when we got to 50 cents, we, we literally had... Um, half a billion of it. We just had kept buying. And um, our, our, our trader says, um, you know, I'm sitting right there and he goes, hey, I got another, uh, you know, 100 million of Ford bank debt. Do you want to buy it? I'm like, no, I hate the name. I can't stand it anymore. <laughs> and he goes, well, we got, we're locked. We got to give a bid. I'm like, I don't want to bid. And he goes, well, we have to. Um, I look at the analyst, you know, and the PM, and I'm like, what do you guys want to do? They go, well, look, we think it's good. So I'm like, I, I hate it. 
let's just buy it, let's bid 30 cents. He goes, he's never gonna say yes. You know, you can't bid down 20 points. I'm like, that's the point. <laughs> I don't wanna own it. And then you hear the trader go, okay, thank you. I'm like, oh. Why, what happened? <laughs> he goes, we own 100 million at 30. And I'm like, shit, like, that's not good. Because first of all, you gotta write down 520 points. Yeah. So literally, you buy 100, but you just lost 100 million mm. on your mark. And I looked at the analyst, and I'm like, I'm gonna kill you, because I, I wanted to. And he goes, I'll be right back. I go, where are you going? He goes, I'm sick to my stomach. I, there was no way they could do this. I'm like, hurry up, I need to fire you. Like, <laughs> this, this isn't enjoyable. Yeah. And okay, we got out at par, but you know, you, you went through, yeah, that's why I was laughing when you said it. It's like, you literally went through hell. I mean, it's not, imagine like every day writing down your portfolio. Mm. And that's, you know, that's what March was mm -hmm. yeah. during COVID. When, you know, we'd buy something, we're like, yeah, we bought a good price. And like, you know, a day later it's down five points or down 10. You just keep marking things down and everybody calls you up. I mean, you guys call up and go, hey, do you know, are are you okay? Do you know what you're doing? Your portfolio's down. Are you, you know, because everybody wants daily, right? It's not like, you know, used to give people yearly, uh, how we did for the year, now it's daily. And they go, uh, are you, you know, are you guys still smart over there? And I'm like, no, everybody lost their intelligence. <laughs> it's, it, it is funny when you go through this mm. and it's, um, but it happens, I would, you know, I would tell you it's eight out of 10. I, yeah. It's not like two out of 10, it's eight out, because that's the only way you're able to buy. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's a great story. Um, so we're up on time here, and I just want to thank you, but I have one last question. This is just for you, Mark, because sure. you're probably the only person in the room that could, um, has experience in this. We're in New York City, right? Yeah. There's a distressed opportunity. It's a couple of blocks down the, the path. It's uh, the New York Knicks. Are you yeah. ready to take them over and turn All around? Right. They got issues. Uh, <laughs> no, you know what, it's fabulous. I mean, it's uh, winning a championship in Milwaukee was, um, it was so cool. Um, I tried to explain to the players it was because of my leadership, but they seem to think it's because of, you know, what they were doing on the court. But yeah, we had a great time. I, it's going to be hard for the Knicks. I mean, you need, you, need, uh, you need certain players, and this league has turned into sort of a superstar league, and you need a couple mm -hmm. of those. But yeah, it's been... I'd, I'd be happy to if they wanted to try. Excellent. As a fan, I'd love you to. So, yeah. <laughs> we'll try. Well, thank you, Pat, Mark. It's been a pleasure, pleasure talking to you.